By the summer of 1973, abiding cynicism was seeping into America's psyche. The economy was mired in the worst recession since the 1930s. A long, costly war in Vietnam had been abandoned with neither peace nor honor. A political scandal called Watergate was taken down a president on live television. But as always, it was music that offered us solace, hope, and inspiration. Stevie Wonder took our spirits to higher ground. Tony Orlando tied a yellow ribbon around an oak tree. And Bob Marley implored us to get up and stand up. In June of that year, Dr. John found himself in the right place at the wrong time. In July, an aging Elvis asked a billion fans listening in on a live satellite broadcast, where do I go from here? And in August, Gladys Knight and the Pips offered us safe passage to a simpler place and time on a midnight train to Georgia. It instantly struck a nerve with millions of Americans. It was a sad song, a story of failed dreams, and at the same time, it was also a tribute to loyalty and compassion in tough times. This year marks the 50th anniversary of one of the greatest records of all time, a record that stands up today musically and emotionally just as effectively as it did in 1973. We're now going to tell you the story of how that magic was made. Better yet, we'll let the music makers themselves tell you this amazing tale. And we'll start, of all places, in Hillsborough, New Jersey. It was one of those sweltering, humid, hot summer nights in 1973. Tony Camillo was lying in bed. He was staring up at the ceiling, thinking and rethinking about the instrumental arrangement he had just composed and recorded for Midnight Train to Georgia. He was replaying it over and over in his head, scrutinizing every track from the rhythm section, each of the three guitars, the bass, the piano, the organ, the drums. He liked what he had created, but Gladys Knight said it just didn't have the feel she was looking for. She told Tony she wanted something more down home, something with a little more ride. You can tell when there's a little something special about a song, and we worked on this song like crazy. We knew what we wanted, and we just hadn't gotten it yet. Slowly, Tony was coming to the realization that Gladys might be right. Years later, he would admit it just didn't have the magic. That version of Midnight Train would not see the light of day. Here's an excerpt from that studio recording. This has never been heard beyond the small group of those involved. Midnight train to Georgia, take one, y'all. Thank you. 
Bubba Knight, Gladys's older brother and head Pip, recalls listening to that version. When we heard it, we called Tony back, right? We said, no, 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 no. This is what's happening right now in the music business. You know, Al Green had out. Na, 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 na. Doing love with you. Yeah, but you ought to do. Yeah, that old kind of thing with those, with right. the, that kind of feel on it. Tony, come on, man, get some of that, get some of that Al Green feel on this song, man. In the late 60s and early 70s, Tony and Gladys have both worked at Motown Records, but their paths never crossed. Tony was a freelancer. He created arrangements for the likes of Stevie Wonder and Diana Ross. Gladys was there under a seven-year exclusive contract. While Gladys was considered by many as the best female singer there, she and the Pips were relegated to Barry Gordy's B-team from day one. They never got the attention, the songs, or the promotion that the top acts received, like Smokey Robinson and The Miracles, The Temptations, The Four Tops, and perhaps more significantly, Diana Ross and The Supremes. The truth of the matter is, Gladys never wanted to sign with Motown in the first place. Uh-uh-uh, I ain't want to go. Gladys and the Pips knew many of the artists working there, and she had heard enough cautionary tales to give her serious pause. And I had heard things about the company that just frightened me. And so I said, that something's not right over there. And as we looked more and more at Motown, to be very, very honest with you, I was afraid that we would not get the attention that we needed or deserved even because they had a caste system over there and to penetrate that, I felt was gonna be very tough. People think that Motown was our first record company. They were the 13th. So we knew what the business was like. You know what I'm saying? But they were a democracy. Gladys and each of the three pips had equal say on business matters. On the matter of joining Motown, Gladys was outvoted three to one. They signed with Motown in 1966. And I was right mm -hmm. in everything that I said, all the drama over there. And eventually we got to be known as the troublemakers because we brought, up, brought all of our experience with us. We were like rebels. And then their artists started looking to us for counsel. I said, how you gonna have a manager and your manager is the same people that got the record company. <laughs> and if you, your record ain't doing good, your manager can't go over there and tell them because they the same people. <laughs> you know, what are they going to do, slap themselves? You know, you know. <laughs> I said, what, what's up with that? They, they never thought about these things and never understood these things. And the ones that were doing well, they didn't want to know. But you had a whole roster full of people that were over there just barely making it. And it, it was just unbalanced to me. By 1972, Gladys and Bubba were about to reach their last nerve. Ron Wisner, a former Buddha Records executive who would later manage Gladys, tells us what happened next. And Gladys and the Pips are having terrible times with Motown. It was going to be an explosive tell-all-lawsuit because they were stiffing them, and they weren't going to renew the deal, and they wanted out, and they were very vocal about it and Motown was trying to keep it quiet. Gladys and the Pips turned down an offer for a new deal with Motown and 
signed up with an unknown but very eager independent label called Fuda Records. They ultimately filed and settled their Motown lawsuit in 1975. The move to Buddha would by no means be the end of their skirmishes with the unsavory business side of making music. They had no idea, for example, that Buddha had a nefarious silent partner, a violent high-ranking mafia leader. Journalist Frederick Dannon came upon him during research for his highly acclaimed book Hitmen, power brokers, and fast money inside the music business. Sonny Franzese was a capo in the Colombo crime family. He was what you'd call a gangster's gangster. He was the real thing. There came a point where Sonny Franzese invested, according to an interview I did, $25,000 in Buddha. And it's a matter of public record that Sonny was a partner in Buddha. He was a legendary hitman who had dozens of hits to his credit, and he'd been tossed out of the U.S. Army as a psychoneurotic with pronounced homicidal tendencies. Listen to Bubba's reaction after just now hearing about Sonny Francis. Oh, no. No, shut up. Oh, God. Oh, Lord. I had no idea. Now, you, now you're making me nervous. Now you're making me nervous. Oh, my God. <laughs> I am so glad we didn't know because that would have put a damper on our growth, our progress. That would have put a damper on it, man. But as for that decision to leave Motown in 1972, well, it turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to them. When she walked out of Motown for the last time, Gladys carried with her a demo from an obscure country singer named Jim Weatherly. The song was called Midnight Plane to Houston. And she's leaving on the midnight plane to Houston. Going back to a simpler place and time. That plane to Houston would become a train to Georgia. We, we found this, this great writer by the name of Jim Weatherly yeah. who just fit us like a glove. And he was a country writer. And, and I'm a great lover of country music. Nobody tells a story, in my opinion, like a country singer or writer or producer. I mean, it's just so raw. So yes, we had music before and, and our gr great record success as great or greater, came after we left Motown. A year earlier, Tony had also turned down an exclusive contract with Motown. He then turned down a similar offer from the legendary songwriting recording team of Holland Dozier Holland. Tony had other ideas for his future. He was building a recording studio in the basement of his home in Hillsboro, New Jersey. He was also putting together a team of unheralded but extremely talented musicians. He wanted to create his own sound, his own hit records. But let's pause here for just a moment and go back to the 1930s in Somerville, New Jersey, when Tony was a young boy. A life in music was calling him at a tender age. Tony is no longer with us, but here's an excerpt of a never-heard-before 2010 interview. 
When I was a kid in grade school, Mrs. Francis was my music teacher, and she used to take me everywhere to, to sing for people. I used to make people cry. I had that little boy soprano voice, right? right? Mm -hmm. There was a trumpet around the house that my brothers and sisters had tried to play, but nobody stuck with it. When I picked it up, it became a, a habit. When I was still in grade school, I started to listen to music on the radio or get a record. And I used to sit down and try to figure out, well, what's the trumpet playing? What, what is the saxophone playing? And I would write it down. And that was my entree into the arranging field. I was 12 years old and I played with a, a man and his wife. She played the piano and he played the trombone. He used to take his teeth out when he played the trombone. <laughs> she used to sing facing the wall in this operatic voice and it, it was a gig. And I made, I used to make five, ten dollars, twelve dollars. Bring it home, put it on my, my mother's dresser drawer. I followed what was seemed to be instinctive. I followed a music path, went through school, went through college, and I went to music school. I got a, I got a scholarship in music and scholarships all the way through. And it was all about music. I went to Juilliard, studied with Bill Vacchiano with the New York Philharmonic. Uh, I did composition, got my PhD in composition. That PhD was from Columbia University where he studied under the tutelage of Leonard Bernstein. By 1957, Tony was married with two young daughters, and he bought a home in Hillsboro, New Jersey. For the sake of stability, he scaled back on his gigs and began teaching music in a local high school. But playing it safe was not Tony's style. It was an interesting, interesting process, the whole idea. I wound up being a teacher. And although I really put my heart and soul in, into teaching, it wasn't fulfilling enough. And I made a conscious decision, I gotta find a way out. So I started to, to bang on doors in New York City in my spare time, saying, let me arrange something for you. Uh, I'll do it free. And finally somebody said, okay, and they gave me a job. And they were happy. And from that, I just started to get all kind of jobs as an arranger. I started making more money than I believed I could ever make. So one thing led to another, to another, and I wound up going to Motown. In 1973, Tony's assistant engineer was an 18-year-old local kid named Dave Dominich. Everyone called him Nitch. For the Midnight Train studio sessions, his job was to run cables and set up microphones. But later, he would become Tony's head engineer and lifelong friend. Tony was brilliant. Just, just, well, because he could hear the whole thing in his head. That was the amazing. I used to go up there, especially when Tony was doing like string and horn arrangements. He had a little, he had a desk set up uh, next to the fireplace up, upstairs, and he had his reel-to-reel -reel tape deck. And he generally would wear headphones, uh, so you wouldn't hear the music, but you just hear Tony. He'd always look up into the sky, and you'd hear him singing out the string parts or the horn parts, and then he'd look down and he inscribe it onto the music paper. The amazing thing about Tony is he could sit there and write a whole string part 
uh, for a whole thing in a half hour, you know, for three three violins, viola, and cello. I mean, Tony was just an amazing guy, and no, no was not in his vocabulary or impossible. Okay, so let's return to where we started on that hot, steamy New Jersey night in 1973. There's Tony lying in bed, staring at the ceiling, creating a rapid-fire tarn of new piano chords and bass lines in his head. Then from somewhere in the throes of that restless night, an epiphany bubbled up from Camillo's subconscious. He woke up the next morning with an entirely new arrangement in his head. It had come to him in a dream. I went to sleep that night, and I woke up in the middle of the night, actually. It came to me during my sleep, and I woke up and I heard it, and it was just really funny how it just fell into place the way it did. That was one of the things that I will never forget. When Tony woke up the next morning, the new arrangement was still there in his head, clear as a bell. It was much simpler, more soulful than the current version. And there was no longer a need for that large, oversized rhythm section he was using. So he only summoned his three go-to Jersey boys, bass player Bob Babbitt, guitarist Jeff Miranoff, and drummer Andrew Smith. Tony would play electric piano himself. It would be a quick day, he promised, and he would pay them each $50 in cash. Bob Babbitt had been a member of the legendary Motown studio band, The Funk Brothers. Tony had worked with him in Detroit and convinced him to move to New Jersey and work for him. Then, fellow phone brother, drummer Andrew Smith, decided to move to New Jersey as well. Bob Abbott is also no longer with us, but listen to this never-before-heard phone interview that he did in 2010. Jeff Miranoff, a young, talented guitarist who had been one of Tony's students. Miranoff limped in that Sunday evening with a really bad case of sunburn. He had spent just a bit too long a day at the Jersey Shore. We went into his office, and he, after a brief explanation, commenced to playing some snippets of an Al Green album, just to immerse us in what he hoped was the essence of what Gladys was wanting. And so we went out into the studio and uh, fired up our equipment, tuned up, and we started running it down. And there were only four of us playing together that day, as opposed to a much larger rhythm section on those first two editions of Midnight Train. This was 
a much more intimate and simpler approach right from the jump. In that kind of environment, everything breathes differently. The musical parts interact differently and they speak differently. Tony had trained all of us to know what he meant and not necessarily be locked into any literal interpretation of what he wrote. So it was always use it as a beginning point to do your thing. And he heavy emphasis on the do your thing. He was all about letting it happen, wanting you to get involved at the level of feeling, at the level of intellect, at the level of what do you have to say about this sequence of chords? Because he had learned that the best turnout was going to come from letting that rhythm section uh, have at it in their own unique way. It was just one of those things that comes of its own. I remember it coming together very fast, one or two takes, and that was it. Let's listen to a short excerpt. Together, Tony and his three talented go-to Jersey boys had found the feel Gladys was looking for. When it came to the R&B or the funk, it's about the players and what their contribution is and how they put that stuff together. Because the bass line and the guitar parts and the drummer, they lay a foundation and it gives the song its life in a whole different way. So once they gave me that, I then could do whatever I do, not get in their way, but add to that. Now that was back in Camillo's wheelhouse, the first thing he added was a dynamic horn section. Tony then turned to Ed Stasium, his 23-year-old novice sound engineer, to do a quick mix and send it right to Gladys in Detroit. I was sitting in the engineer's chair, green as could be. I had an idea, but I was green. I couldn't read music. I was just a guitar player. I had been in studios uh, as a player in a band, and I also was doing demos in my band's manager's basement, and in my basement at my parents' house. Andrew Smith and Bob Babbitt were Tony's buddies from Detroit, and Tony somehow convinced them to move to New Jersey to be part of a house band at mm -hmm. Venture Sound. I cut my teeth recording demos with those guys. Gladys and Bubba were ecstatic. And Tony said that back. That's it. That's what we're looking for, right? That's it. Okay, let's go in the studio. Oh man, after being derailed for four months, the midnight train was finally back on track and now steaming towards Georgia. Tony then called on Barry Miles, another extremely talented Jersey musician, to add a piano part. Barry was a child prodigy. Even as a kid, he was playing with Miles Davis and John Coltrane. By the early 70s, he was an influential pioneer in jazz fusion. 
and later he would become Roberta Flack's music director. But on this day, he was doing session work for Tony. Tony threw a chart in front of me, and he said, okay, listen to this track, and I'd like you to go for yourself, especially in the intro, but if you can have a little country flavor to it, that, that would be great. The first thing that you hear in a song and the last thing that you hear in the song are really important. And Tony was so aware of that because it states the whole mood of the thing and it hopefully draws people in. And I came up with a little catchy Floyd Kramer-esque line in the very beginning of the intro. And Tony said, yeah, that's great. That's exactly what I'm looking for. And here's what he came up with. with strings. And Tony played the Hammond organ part himself. Camillo and Stasium immediately flew off to Detroit in a major rainstorm. They met Gladys and the Pips at a recording studio, and the first thing they did was record the Pips' unforgettable background vocals. Leaving on a midnight train to Georgia. And then, it only took one take for Gladys to do her part. He's leaving on that midnight train to Georgia. Yeah, said he's going back to a simpler place and time. Listen to Barry Miles' take on what you just heard. You can look at it as one take, but it really wasn't. I mean, it was the one recording, but it was like the culmination of a lot of preparation. She had been rehearsing that song for God only knows how long in her head and previous versions and things. I mean, she's really a special artist. Everything she does, her pitch is perfect, her phrasing is perfect, her time is perfect, you know, the quality of everything that she does, the voice, it, that, that's all there. So she doesn't have to spend that much time, spent that time somewhere in her life, probably in church, rehearsing or performing since she was a little kid. She's a special artist. Gladys can sing jazz like wonderful, and she can sing anything. Everyone in the studio was just overjoyed. I mean, blown away as they listened to the playback. But Bubba had an idea for just one more thing to do. And Gladys went in to lay her vocal down. And she was so good. One take, bam, that's it. But check it out, though. When I was listening to the playback, and my sister, at that particular time, had a problem with ad-libs. And so when we got down to the end of Midnight Train in Georgia, and I I heard something, and I went up to the board, and I punched the talk back. And while they were playing, I said, Gladys, say this. I got to go. I got to go. 
hey, hey, I got to go, I got to go. And she went back in there after she laid down that first tape. She went back and put that on top of that first tape. Bubba's idea was a stroke of creative genius. It brought the song home with an emotional crescendo. From talent, commitment, and collaboration, a masterpiece had been created. A divergent group of extremely talented people had come together, reached down deep, and created magic. The whole was much, much more than the sum of its parts. Ron Wisner, a former Buddha Records executive who would later manage Gladys, watched it all unfold. Gladys was very interesting. If she liked something, you can just see and feel her. There was a whole different level of her enjoyment, and it, there was a different edge that came out. Nitch, the 18-year-old assistant engineer, recalls the day Stasium returned from the Detroit vocal session and started working on the final mix. I specifically remember this like if it was yesterday. I was down the studio, and Ed came in and put the tape up and we're listening to the vocals and just looking at each other like this is ridiculously good you know it was just so amazing and here's Bubba's tribute to everyone involved I love Midnight Train to Georgia for the chemistry that went into that song Jim Weatherly's writing the story was beautiful Tony Camillo's arrangement put a frame around oh. that song that Jim had written. And then we jumped in there and put ourselves in the picture. It was a Mona Lisa, buddy. Listen to what Tony was doing on there. Yeah. Listen to what my sister was doing. <laughs> and the pips bouncing off. And the musicians, Bob Babbitt and all of those guys in the studio, you could feel them. It's about yeah. that feeling, man. It's about the chemistry and the combination of all of those people that was involved. No yeah. person involved in that particular record was minuscule. No. N nobody was small. And here's how Ron Wisner puts it. The great thing about that collaboration, and that's an important word from my standpoint, is that if she respected somebody, she would collaborate. And it's a different mindset today. It's a different animal. But that's why these magic things happen. And happen it did. Georgia. 
The song became a huge international hit. It would earn Gladys Knight and the Pips their first Grammy, and it launched the group into a whole new orbit. It secured them a lofty place in the history of American pop music. Here's what Barry Miles had to say. This song had a whole aura to it. It's timeless and ageless, and it, it stands unto itself. I think you'll enjoy this. Let's go back to a quick moment in 1951 when Gladys was just a little girl. This little eight-year-old child prodigy gained national recognition by winning top honors on Ted Mack's original Amateur Hour. That would be the equivalent of today's Star Search. She was, by the way, the only African-American contestant. asked her what she wanted to be when she grew up, she replied, a concert singer. Now at age 79, thank God, Gladys Knight is still touring and living that childhood dream. Her voice remains strong and vibrant, and she still gets a standing ovation each time she closes her show with a spirited delivery of Midnight Train to Georgia. This has been a production of The Gumption Group. Ian T. Shearn is the creator, writer, and executive producer of this podcast. He also happens to be the son-in-law of the late Tony Camillo, who produced and arranged Midnight Train to Georgia. Robin Garb is the narrator and music supervisor. Robin Garb was also an invaluable consultant, sharing the wisdom and expertise he accumulated during his long, distinguished career in the music, record, and film industries. Nationally acclaimed musicians and composers Vince DiCola and Kenny Meredith graciously donated the podcast underscore they created. Special thanks to the Columbia Center for Oral History, which provided an audio interview of Gladys and Bubba Knight from its 2011 Apollo Theater Oral History Project. Thanks also to music journalist Chris M. Jr., who shared his audio interview of Bob Babbitt, and Jeff Miranoff, who provided his audio interview of Tony Camillo. Audio engineering was provided by Jordan Gaspore. Steve Diacutis, former head engineer for Tony Camillo, donated his audio mixing skills. Broadcast veteran Rebecca Sebastian graciously shared her knowledge of the podcast business. <laughs>